This morning we are in a, in a challenging text. And if you didn't think that our church preached in an expository fashion, meaning uh, the meaning of the text is the, the meaning of the sermon, and the focus of the sermon hopefully this morning will uh, be evidence of that commitment. This last week I was uh, talking to a trusted friend about different things in my life, about my life at home and, and some of the challenges that we're facing there and some of the challenges that we face uh, here at Redemption and some of the challenges we're facing in this uh, new effort with this school that we're involved with and these other things and just personal challenges and all these things just kind of sharing with a trusted friend and um, kind of putting the, the, <clears throat> the stressors kind of being out there. You know when you do that with people when you're talking to them? And I remember this trusted friend, you know, who specifically sought out his counsel, said to me, well, you know the thing that's, that all those things share in common, your, your, your home and your workplace and the school endeavor and your own personal life, you're the thing that is the common thing of all those things. And so what he was saying is essentially, yeah, I, I see how those things are, are stressful and those things are challenging, um, but part of the reason they're challenging is because you're there <laughs> and you're in all of those environments, which was helpful to hear. And he actually, in going to him, had done what I asked him to do, which was to give me his honest opinion. Uh, but it's hard, hard sometimes to hear counsel uh, from others. You really have two options with counsel, benefit or hide, right? Benefit or hide. And as long as sin is going to corrupt our world, uh, which will be the case until Jesus returns, confrontation will be necessary. Our world is full of deception, and our minds are quick to grab onto untrue things, like rock climbers, right? Grab, grab onto ledges. Confrontation is not only necessary, it's a mercy. Imagine if our, our own individualized versions of reality were never challenged. Imagine what marriages would be like. If you never heard from the other person, uh, I, I think your perspective's off a little bit here. Imagine what parenting would be like if kids never gave up their idea for how the world works, right? Just imagine the, the terror that that would be. The glorious and unfortunate truth is that growing sometimes requires growing pains. And that comes a lot of times through confrontation. How does our God confront? And what should our response be to him when he does so? When he does that necessary and loving thing? Well, in our text, we're going to see this morning this. This is our point. This should be on your little insert there. Uh, when God confronts our self-deception, we either draw near to him in worship or withdraw from him to protect our pride. When God confronts our self-deception, we either draw near to him in worship or withdraw from him to protect our pride. I am hoping that we walk away from this morning thinking that confrontation is the opportunity of a lifetime. 
We're going to actually watch this confrontation happen. God's going to lay out a mission for his king, this King Saul, who he's appointed, and, and he's going to do what he always seems to do, which is go halfway and do part of it and submit in, in, in portions. But then there's this fascinating thing that's going to happen. God and Saul are going to have this back and forth where Saul is going to do all that he can to dodge reality. And God will do all that he can to, to show Saul the truth. And it turns out God can do a lot more than Saul can do. And so we're going to see this fight ensue to, to bring uh, visibility to Saul, to his sin. It's almost like a, uh, a spiritual, if, if this were a like spiritual reality were a nature channel, this would be like the, the, the hunter and the prey kind of scene where God is after Saul. And Saul is trying to stay blind and we'll see. What happens? We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 15 this morning. We're going to read our text. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. If you're able uh, to stand in reverence for the Word of God as we hear what God says, if not, you can revere God's Word uh, still sitting down. Uh, That's fine, but let's hear 1 Samuel chapter 15 in its totality, 1 through 35. I'll read it for us. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them at Telaim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites, and Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel said to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears, and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop, I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. 
And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoils, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams, for rebellion is as the sin of divination. And presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. (coughs) And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past, and Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. You can be seated. There's a lot here. But we're going to look at this in three stages. First, we're going to see this mission that's half fulfilled in verses 1 through 9. You'll notice that kind of the history of this doesn't take very much time to tell. But then we see this confrontation, which is really the purpose of this text, in verses 10 through 25. And so we're going to see Saul's self-defense against the persistence of Samuel. And lastly, we'll see in 26 through 35 the consequences of this all, where this all is headed or leading. So... 
Let's look at this mission that's half fulfilled. You'll notice that Saul gets a crystal clear mission from God. Everything that has to do with the Amalekites, destroy it. Man, woman, child, animal, all of it. Kill it all. Very, very clear. You'll notice that before he gives this mission, Samuel prefaces the mission with the statement in verse 1, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Just a little reminder, Saul, you're the king because God made you the king. Now that you are my prince or the king of Israel, but you are under the Lord, I want you to do this. Now, what is this story with Agag and Amalek? And and we need to understand where this is coming from. If you look back in your Bibles, you can do this later. In Exodus 17, Israel was wandering and they were thirsty. They were wandering in the wilderness and they were in this vulnerable state. And it's then when they were attacked, the Amalek and these people. You remember the story when uh, Moses' arm is being held up during a battle? And as long as his arm was held up, they were winning. And as soon as it started to droop, they started losing. It was that battle was with the Amalekites in that scene. God was propping up a vulnerable people in order to show them that he was the one who was bringing them the victory. And it happened to be over these Amalekites who we're referring to here. And after that battle, the Lord gives a very specific instruction to Moses in Exodus 17, 14 through 16. And it says this. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner, saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Later in Deuteronomy 25, we we hear a little bit more about why this is such a despicable thing that happened. In verses 17 through 19, this is why you should read books like Leviticus and Deuteronomy, right? This is under a section called Miscellaneous Laws. This is really important to understanding what's going on in 1 Samuel. It says this, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came up out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary, and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. So, it appears that Amalek attacked Israel when when she was particularly vulnerable, and God took note of it and made sure that the people of Israel knew, I will get my revenge on these people. I will defend my people. It's not going to be right now, but someday, write it down. Don't forget this. I'm a protector of my people. Apparently what Amalek did, he likely attacked the women and children who were not in the front of the party, but in the back of the party, or those who were particularly physically struggling to keep up, were lagging behind, and those are the people who Amalek singled out. Almost like an animal picking out the weak you know, member of the herd. And that despicable, cruel act, God took note of and said, there will be a day that I will make that right. 
And 1 Samuel 15 is that day. Hundreds of years later, interestingly enough. Now, let's address a thorny question, which you may have asked yourself as you read this, which is, how can God call for the execution of an entire people? That's a fair question. I like one commentator's statement. He said, our claim is only that Scripture is true, not that it is sanitized. (laughs) And this is testimony to that. Five reasons why this is acceptable in God's Word. Number one, God is their creator, and he has the, the right to do that. God as creator has right over his creation. Number two, God is just. When you think about how our culture would respond to someone who attacks people who are especially vulnerable, we would be crying for justice, wouldn't we? This is virtuous vengeance, one author says. As the society continues to to grow wicked, it appears. It reminds us of, of Noah in the days of the flood. They're described as sinners in verse 18, and it seems like how they were birthed in this cruel way just continued going downhill. And so God is just. But God is also patient. Some scholars put this 300 years after the original incident that God does this. Number four, kings represent people. Kings represent people. So in war, there are groups who bear the consequences for the decisions of their leaders. We see that all the time. And number five, the scriptures describe a far worse act of justice when Christ returns. And so if we struggle with this, it's inevitable that we would struggle with the doctrine of hell, right? It only makes sense. So it's really important in these scenarios to note the relationship between the nature of the offense and the consequence that's given. Spurning a good and sovereign creator deserves the most severe consequence. And we misunderstand judgment and hell because we go into it with a view as God as this man upstairs who exists to make us content. And if you have that view of God, then hell doesn't make any sense. But that's not the God of the Scripture. The God of the Scripture is perfectly holy. He's perfectly just. He's perfectly sovereign and righteous. And spurning a God like that, the nature of that offense corresponds to the nature of the judgment that we see in hell. And so we see a microcosm of that in this judgment of the Amalekites. Now, there's probably more to that question, but that's all we have time for because it's really not Saul's predicament. He's not torn up morally about what's going on, and that's why he backed off. Okay, so that's more of a, uh, our thing that we need to, to address. Well, what do we see from this? We see that Amalek's offense is, is, or the people of Amalek or Amalekites, it's no small matter, right? That God ordered his appointed king to get this full justice that he asked for, And so the textual issue here is obedience. It's not, again, the morality of this situation. And so Saul goes into the situation and rightly allows these people who are living with the Amalekites, the Kenites, to to leave. Because God's issue is with the Amalekites. 
And it turns out, we don't have it recorded in Scripture, that the Kenites were somehow kind to the people of Israel, and so they are allowed to escape. So he attacks the Amalekites, he devotes the people to destruction, but then we find verse 9, and this is the tension of the whole text, this is the problem. It says, But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. It's easy to spend other people's money. It's easy to give out of an abundance. And it's easy to sacrifice that, the thing that's not valuable to you. Right? That's what it says. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted that to destruction. Which sounds a lot like me in my garage, like every couple of Saturdays. Right? I mean, there's really not anything with that that... Um, that is fulfilling the command of what God has set up. And so this is the tension. This is the problem. This is the issue that kind of has us on the edge of our seat in this text. What is God going to do in response to this half-hearted obedience? What is he going to do to this this half-fulfilled mission? What is his response to spiritual hypocrisy and self-defense and idolatry? And you notice that's, that's the whole point of this chapter. That's what comes after. It has to do with this confrontation. So that's our second thing is that in our outline there is this, this back and forth between the Lord and Samuel, who are the, basically the Lord's spokesman, and Saul. And we keep going from self-defense to persistence back and forth. We are introduced to a major theme. and It says in verse 10, the word of the Lord came to Samuel I regret that I have made Saul king. See, Samuel reacts to this news as well. He's probably wondering what God is up to. What? (laughs) I just appointed this guy. What's next? How is this going to work out? And he's upset. He could also be upset just because of being grieved at the fact that what the Lord says, he's turned back from following me, he has not performed my commandments, and Samuel in this way embodies what the Lord is like. He's grieved. Now, another question, how can God be described as regretting anything? Kind of makes it sound like he's admitting to some kind of a mistake. Right? It's okay to ask these kinds of questions as you read the Bible, just so you know. Okay? It's okay. That's probably a question you're thinking of, right? So, how do we know what is meant by this word regret? You can word study it all you want. It means regret. The way you know what a word means is you look at the environment that it's spoken in, Right? That's how you know if I use the word tail, if I'm talking about the end of an animal or if I'm talking about a, a story that I'm telling, right? It's the environment that the words are spoken in. And so when in verse 11 comes, I regret that I have made Saul king, he actually gives a reason for why he's feeling the way that he's feeling. He says, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments, And I think that's the reason why you can view this kind of regret as grief or sorrow. Because the prophet of the Lord then goes and cries all night and is upset by what's going on. 
And so I think that that's really what he's after. That's what he means. He's not being, oh, man, I blew it. What was I thinking? Saul was so tall and so impressive. That's not what God is saying, right? But he's grieved over what's happened. This shows us that God is not without feeling. God cares about the actions of his people. He cares about the, the destiny of his people and the people who are appointed to lead it. And he's not emotionally distant and cold like the other gods. Just if you feed them enough sheep, they'll be fine. He's not that way. And so there's this challenge that comes. Samuel rose early. God sends him to speak to Saul about this. <laughs> he finds Saul after discovering that Saul has set up a monument likely to the victory that he just had over the Amalekites. <laughs> you got to love Saul. He's just, you know exactly where he's at all the time. <laughs> he bothers to build a monument to the victory of the battle and is not as concerned about what the Lord actually told him to do. But, so Samuel finds him after discovering this monument, and then Saul just has the gall to say, in spiritual terms, blessed be, in verse what is it, 13, blessed be you to the Lord, I have performed the command. Is that a defensive statement or what? That's right out of the gate. I did it, I promise, we won. Saul is self-deceived. He's convinced himself that the victory was sufficient, maybe, the Israelites are probably satisfied with what this new king is doing. And his deception is dripping with this kind of spiritual mush that doesn't mean anything to the Lord. And so Samuel asks some questions. Verse 14, And what then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? I love it when the Lord asks questions in the Bible. It's like he's, he's leading Saul where he doesn't want to go. And so Saul, being Saul, verse 15, what does he say? I repent in dust and ashes. You're right, I confess. You know, he says, they have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we have devoted to destruction. Do you know what he's emphasizing here? They did the wrong thing. I did the right thing. Now, that would, that would work except for the fact that Saul's the king. I mean, it sounds a lot like Aaron and the golden calf incident in Exodus 32. And so this posturing continues. It gets worse by saying that we did this so that we could sacrifice these things to the Lord. There was a spiritual reason. We disobeyed God for God's sake. And I love the bluntness of Samuel, who is really representing the bluntness of God in verse 16. He says, stop. Stop. <laughs> you can't fool me. You can dress it up as obedience to the law all you want. I know what's going on. And I've got some words for you. And what does he say? You expect him just to come out with both barrels, but he asks these four leading questions. 
that just devastate Saul's self-protection. Question number one. Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? Meaning, don't distance yourself from the responsibility of this when you are responsible as the king. Don't separate it now that it's convenient for you. You want to be the king when things are good. Bottom line, you're the king. Saul, I know you're insecure about that. What a line. Your big stuff, everybody's singing your praises, all, though you are little in your own eyes. I expect more out of a king. What a devastating statement. And he basically just goes over the instructions again. He says, here's what you were told. Here's what you're supposed to do. See, Saul's fear is what is going to motivate his obedience. We know that, and God knows that insecurity in him. Second question, verse 19, why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? It's a hard question to hear from a prophet. It's, it's more specific than just winning the battle. See, Saul, God was specific, right? How this looks to the people isn't as much concern as what I told you to do. And you know what I told you to do. You see, military victories are not hard for the Lord. <laughs> he, can do, he can defeat anyone he wants to, anytime he wants. Saul, he doesn't need you to do that. He wanted you to do what he told you to do. He wants to be trusted on and relied on, and, and even when things are grim. Why did you disobey the voice of the Lord? But then comes the whopper. Second half of verse 19. Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Does that wording sound familiar? Remember what happened last week? He gives a rash vow. People can't eat even though they are starving and are, are struggling and they're, they're walking around this just like honey-dripping wonderland and can't eat any of it? And what do they end up doing? Killing animals and exact same words, pouncing on the spoil. And Samuel says the exact same thing to Saul. See, the people were so faint from his vow that they pounced on it. And Saul was so committed to pleasing people that he's doing the same thing in a different way. You see, God has put these people under a ban, under a curse. And now Saul is, is pretending as if that stuff is his when God has devoted that to destruction for waiting for 300 years to make right when they preyed on his people and killed women and children and God wanted to close that circle of justice. And Saul just doesn't have the guts to tell people to not take the animals. Notice what Saul says after those questions. Verse 20. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission in which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag to the king. And I have devoted... I, <laughs> again, verse 21. But the people took the spoil and the best of the things devoted to destruction. He still... He doesn't get it still. 
And so he's dug in. His arms are folded. His eyes are closed. He's turned away. But the thing he hasn't factored in is that God can reach into the human heart. And he asks this last devastating question in verse 22. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? What do you think he's after, Saul? Some more meat on a pile of rocks? Or the obedience of his people? And that's as plain as it gets. And Saul has nowhere to go. The answer is obvious. And so God presses and persists to break Saul out of his place of self-denial. He's imprisoned by pride and fear, and God will not turn a blind eye to a person who is suffering, even a person who is suffering at their own hand. And so he devastates him with that question. Obviously, obedience is better. Listening to God is better. And he even says, basically, sin is sin. So rebellion is the same thing as divination, which is viewed by Israel as a much worse sin. And presumption, which didn't seem all that serious in some contexts, and compared to idolatry, idolatry is really serious stuff. And, and Samuel's saying that stuff is the same substance. That's the same stuff. That's rebellion. That's not trusting. That's self-protection. See, the person who rebels against the known will of God is acting like the person who's invoking a false God to get what they want. They're both failing to trust. When you presume to know what God wants over what God says, it's very similar to idolatry. The other day I, was, uh, I asked um, Hudson to go do something, to go, I think, put something away in the garage and... One other thing. I'm like, and that's kind of the max, like two things at his age. It's like, we're already at capacity. We're already pushing it a little bit, you know, because he's a little guy. And he came back with um, a piece of paper that he had drawn something on and like a sock, something. And, <laughs> and he came, like, he was like presenting this to me, like, oh. Father, let me bless you. <laughs> and I was just standing there confused, like, I don't understand what's going on right now. Like I'm, but he somehow, from the kitchen down the steps down to the garage, like his mind had taken what I had asked him to do clearly and morphed it into this like thing that he thought would just be so glorious and wonderful. <laughs> and he came back and presented this to me, and again, I was just like, Are, did you put your shoes away? You know, like I. I'm going back to what I asked you before. I know that's kind of a silly example of this, but this is kind of what's happening. He's clear. This is what I told you to do. And Saul's trying to present him all this stuff. Look at all these animals. (laughs) Saul, that's not what I'm after. One author says, all the smoke and fat on Gilgal's altar would never replace the pleasure God could have had from the living sacrifice of Saul's will. That's what God is after. And so God's confrontation, it proves effective, it seems like, in verse 24, uh, when it says, Saul says, I have sinned for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Finally, we're getting somewhere. 
It seems like. He even gets down to the motive, right? This is the problem. He's afraid of people. Okay, now we're there. But listen to what he then says. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. Okay, that sounds pretty good, right? But then it goes on. He says, no, I'm not going to do it. And eventually it's all about, well, can you, can you be with me in front of the elders of the people? Make sure they know that we're all good. And what starts with seemingly sincere repentance goes on a downward spiral and ends up in this politicking as the king of Israel again. So, this is the confrontation that we have. Lastly, we need to look at these consequences. Okay, so here's what happens from this, from 26 through 35. We've got to move quickly here. Samuel says, I'm not going to go back with you. This is a definitive now word from God saying, okay, Saul, you want your own will? We're sorry, you get your own will. And you're going to be rejected now as the king because you rejected his word. This is the whole point, Saul. And so there's this visual illustration where Saul grabs his robe and actually tears the cloth. And Samuel uses this as an opportune moment to say, in the same way that this isn't going back on my garment, it's done. The kingdom's torn away from you. It's over, man. You are out. Now, the way he describes that is interesting in verse 29 when it says, And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Quick question. How can it say that God doesn't regret when it says twice in the same chapter that he does regret? See, this was a long preaching week for me, or like in preparation. Um, how, how can that be? Again, what's the environment of these words? The finality of the kingdom being taken away from Saul, right? The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor. We'll talk about that later. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret in its meaning. There's a finality to what's going on and Saul is scrambling. No, I, I, I think God should rethink this purpose. I don't, I don't know that he really knows the best option here. And we should, if you come back to me, we'll talk to the people, we'll figure this all out. And he's scrambling and Samuel says, no. God doesn't change his purposes. God's chosen the next king, who we know, right, is a really important figure. There's a plan here. He's not like you and I where we go, oh, I wish I had done that differently. God's not like that. He doesn't regret in that way. He doesn't have plan B's and C's and D's and E's, none of that. He does as he pleases. So... One author says, The everlasting one of Israel does not play mind games, and unlike man, he does not vacillate in his purpose. Listen to this. The paradox tends to split our minds, but a little thought tells us that this God who both repents and does not repent is the only God we can serve. Only in the consistent God of verse 29 and in the sorrowful God of verse 35 do we find the God worthy of praise. Here is a God who is neither fickle in his ways nor indifferent in his responses. Here is a God who has both firmness and feeling. If we cannot comprehend, we can perhaps apprehend at least enough to adore. What a picture. 
God puts this tension in this chapter to demonstrate his glory and what he's like. In all of its paradox and all of its mind-blowing attributes. So we know this sense of regret seems to mean God doesn't reverse course. He doesn't switch his mind or his purposes in this way. You think of another way to think about this is the dynamic within Jesus. Remember Gethsemane? When he's praying, God, if there's another way. If there's another way, but your will be done. And then the disciples try to defend him when he's being arrested. And he's like, what are you going to do? This is fixed. This is set. This is what's happening. You're thinking, how does that work? How can he be so uh, emotional and, and so torn up about what's happening and yet so confident in the sovereignty of God at the same time? Well, it's because God is consistent. God is personal and sovereign. God is always all of these things, even when you're in Gethsemane or even when you're being arrested. So, we see the finality of how Saul responds. God's sovereign will is being done. We also see God's sovereign will being done and that Samuel agrees to go with Saul. And it seems like, well, why would Samuel agree to do that? And then you remember there's Agag hanging out there. And justice hasn't been done yet. So Samuel goes and hacks Agag to pieces. Closes the loop. 300-year promise, done. You see how the sovereignty of God is at work, even in the midst of these circumstances. It's amazing how God is working with this flawed king and yet accomplishing exactly what he wants to do. In closing, this last scene in in chapter 15 is kind of this, this sad scene. Saul and Samuel go different directions, never to cross paths again. They're less than 10 miles away, less than a day's travel. It says they don't, they don't see each other until the day of the death. Now, why is that significant? Because remember, Samuel is a prophet. He represents God's voice. And if God's king doesn't hear God's voice, what does that mean? see the, the importance of this? The imagery as these two men walk their different directions? God is left empowering Saul to do what he's doing. And the voice of God just gets quieter and quieter and quieter until it's gone. Because Saul is about himself. And the voice of the Lord is drowned out in that setting. And here's the incredible thing about this passage. After all the silliness that Saul puts in front of the Lord, the last verse just gets me every time. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. It's an amazing God that we serve, that he is personal, that he feels things. So, to step back and look at some implications here, and then we'll, be, we'll move into communion. Our point was, when God confronts our self-deception, we either draw near to him in worship or withdraw from him to protect our pride. And so I think this scene of confrontation is so instructive, isn't it? 
Don't you see yourself in Saul, like bobbing and weaving conviction? Like, nope, I don't know what you're talking about. You know, (laughs) what animals? I can't hear anything. I mean, you know what that's like, right? And so this totally touches our day-to-day lives by showing us the plan and the character and the nature of God. And I think it does in as many ways as I'll get out in a couple of minutes. Number one, uh, it shows us that God isn't unconcerned and passive about our self-deception. God isn't passive about our self-deception. He's active in this process. He's the initiator of this judgment. He's the initiator of all these leading questions. One author says, nonchalance is never listed as an attribute of the true God. He's doing stuff, and he cares about it. He's not just doing stuff. He's passionate to see this this, uh, understanding dawn on Saul. He wants it to happen. He's regretting things. He's saddened by things. Why would God allow himself to be grieved by his creatures, for goodness sake? Because he's personal. And now, how does this translate into our context? In the New Testament, we, we, we hear things about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. God is active as well at uprooting our self-deception. He has planted the Holy Spirit in his people, literally, given us his Holy Spirit that will counter our self-deception. Have you considered that the Spirit of God is indwelling inside of you if you're a Christian? He's that committed to, to loosening your grip on idols and untrue things. He's doing an inside job, you could say. And he's passionate about it. The Spirit is not just aloof, not really caring one way or the other about how things go, if you obey or disobey. The Bible says we can grieve the Holy Spirit. Grieve him. Grieve God. And the grief of the Spirit over our sin makes him no less sovereign in our lives. See, the reason why the Holy Spirit can convict concerning sin and righteousness and judgment is because he himself is passionate about those things. And in the best sense that I can say this, God is coming for you. God is passionately and actively working to show us the truth. The truth about ourselves that we don't like to see. The truth about him that we need to see. And so my question for you this morning is, how has God been showing you the truth about yourself? Are you receptive? Are you listening? Are you looking into the mirror of God's word? And are you willing to see the reflection that he gives Avoiding confession and repentance is a bit like not cleaning your mirrors for a long time. I have no idea how mirrors get dirty. It's one of those like, mysteries of life to me, but somehow they do. And the dirtier they are, the less we can see our true selves. And confession and repentance basically is cleaning that mirror. It leads to greater clarity and more things to see and notice and repent of. And so my question to you, is God pressing you in some ways? Are you ducking him? like now, over some things. Areas of conviction you've tried to keep dormant or uncover. Consider Saul's example and how good God is at exposing what we try to hide. Here's how the gospel frees us uh, to, to treat this inevitable confrontation with God in a very different way. Number one, you can't hide in the first place. Bummer, he already knows, okay? So you're, you're not on winning ground to start. And God will always be more aware of your sin than you are. 
Okay, so that's number one. Number two, pretending like our sin isn't serious doesn't change the fact that the divine Son of God has died for it on a cross. See, God has declared all sin deadly serious by doing that to Jesus. And so we, we can't make gradations and distinctions and degrees and all this stuff that we try to do to justify. Third, if you're a Christian, God is your father and advocate and helper. Because of what Jesus has done, the confrontation conversation is entirely different, isn't it? God has proven his interest in freeing you from sin by having his own son pay the cost and sending the Holy Spirit to see it defeated. You see, the reason you're saved is because of God's initial confrontation of you, which makes us trust when he confronts us the next time because of how much good it did to us the first time. As Christians, we only benefit from being confronted by God. And if you're a Christian, you will not be able to live comfortably in sin. You will not be able to be unresponsive to to conviction for very long. You will have a breaking point, and you might as well break early. So find life and freedom. That's the first implication, is that God is is not unconcerned and passive about our self-deception. He's after us in the best way possible. Number two, God defines obedience... And will judge us by that standard. See, Saul, Saul's mistake was that he thought he could define things. And we're responsible for what God has revealed to us. Now, this is probably the most upsetting thing, to, if you're not a Christian this morning, to think that God defines obedience and not us. And it's his standard that we'll be judged by, right? That irritates us. It bothers us because we want to be in control of that. If you're a Christian, you, you know that, that God sets his standard at, at where it is. And even this scenario, it was even personal to Saul, where the people were probably going around, hey, great job, king, you, you really routed him, well done. And the whole time Saul knew, this is not right. See, you and I are quick to offer alternatives to obedience, right? Alternatives that are easier or come more naturally or cost less or require less. We're more likely to try to offer burnt offerings and sacrifices than obey what we know God is blatantly telling us. Because it's convenient, right? So what kind of sacrifices are you trying to offer the Lord instead of obedience? Are you trying to change the terms of obedience? Are you trying to reshape cement? Well, I know this area of my life is not, but I'll just... I'll give a little more, I'll serve a little more, I'll read my Bible a little more, you know. How are you countering what he's blatantly telling you? God defines obedience and will judge us according to his own standard. And one of the most comforting things as we kind of enter into our time of communion now is that God is sovereign over the, our failed confrontations. That's the wonderful thing. That we know that In this text, we see him fulfill his promise. We see him set things up for David, who will set things up for Jesus. That that God is this way of, of confronting us and even recycling our failed confrontations for his purposes. It's astounding. One last warning for those of you who may not know Christ this morning. As you think about Saul and Samuel walking in different directions... Never to meet again. 
there's a, there's a palpable, tangible, concrete sense that if you continue to reject what God is telling you to do, which is namely to believe in the work of His Son and to acknowledge that you don't have what it takes to be right with Him. That's what God is after. If you do not acknowledge that, you're on that path that Saul's on. And that that separation and silence from God will be final and deafening one day. That one day every tongue will confess, as we sang earlier, including you. So let this example be a final warning to those of you who want to couch terms of obedience in your own terms. Or avoid the confrontation of God. You're not going to do that well. It's my prayer that as God confronts us about our sin that that it draws us nearer to him instead of creating more separation from him. One of the most tangible ways that we can remember that and do that this morning is by remembering the peace terms that we have with God, which is through the body and blood of Christ. And so um, this is a time for people who are disciples and followers of Jesus Christ. You don't have to be a part of our church necessarily to do this. If you're a Christian, you're more than welcome here. If you're not a Christian, we just ask for you to respectfully abstain, to consider the things that, that we've talked about, because this really, it doesn't make sense for, for you to, to remind yourself about the grace of God if you haven't taken advantage of it in the first place and, and submitted to him. So we're gonna, uh, I'll pray for us here in a second. For those of you who have volunteered to serve, you can come forward and kind of uh, take up your, your spot. And what we'll do is we'll just enter into a time of, of prayer and reflection, and you can come forward down either of the aisles and and grab the elements and head back to your seat, and then we'll take it all together as a group, okay? So let me pray as we prepare to enter into this time of communion. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you, God. Thank you for the sacrificial lamb. God, thank you that though we have tried to hide from the Garden of Eden, You have made a way for us to come out of hiding and to find shelter in you, from you. God, I pray that you would would teach us how um, how to look into the mirror of your word, how to interact with you in a way that that is honest. God, I imagine many here are, are... They know that their lives are are not conformed to you in very specific ways that you've been talking to them about. And God, I pray that you help them out of hiding. Help them, God, to find freedom from the self-imposed slavery of sin. And to find that you still love us and that you're still merciful and you're still willing to walk with us and all the things that are true of you. God, I pray for those who, who don't know you yet, that, Lord, this would be a time that, that they would admit that they have drafted the terms of this relationship with you and that they're obeying in ways that they've constructed. But, God, when they read chapters like this chapter or they understand more about you, they realize they, just, they don't know you the way that they think and you're different than the way that we think. So shape their minds and their understanding around what it, what it means to truly be free, to, 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 not, um, to not disobey you in order to try to serve you, God, but to really listen to your voice and respond to what you say. 
Now, we thank you that you've made your will clear through your word and through the Holy Spirit. And God, forgive us for times that we just pretend to not know. Lead us in, in conviction. Lead us out of this, uh, this, this jail that we've set up for ourselves. And we pray that we just find that freedom together as the body of Christ. If it means uh, talking to one another and repenting of things in relationships amongst those in our church. If it means uh, repent, repenting of uh, financial misdealings to the government, if it means talking to bosses and owning uh, things that are ours, or um, just personal hidden things that only you know, God, I pray you would lead us into freedom. Help this time of communion now to be, uh, to, to be helpful, a tangible reminder of how you have uh, covenanted yourself to us in the new covenant terms and, and are serious about giving us freedom and allowing us to, to fulfill the law through the power of the Holy Spirit instead of in the power of the flesh. So lead us in this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.